1: You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City, a journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged.
0: And here we are. This is episode 99 of Jerusalem Unplugged. And you will be able to discover the future of the podcast at the end of episode 100. As we approach this very important uh, episode, I would like to urge you once again to send me all of the questions that you may have for me or about Jerusalem that we didn't cover throughout the past two years and the 99 episodes so far recorded of Jerusalem Unplugged. Please, be in touch as soon as possible, I plan to have episode 100 published just in a few weeks. But in the meantime, enjoy the latest episode of Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, with and today it's with great pleasure that my guest is Loren Banco. Loren was with me at SOA, so this is uh, something that I want to disclose immediately. But at the moment, she is a fellow, a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. And previously, she was the author of uh, The Invention of Palestinian Citizenship, 1918-1947, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2018. With Lorraine, we will talk about her previous work and also her current work. But first of all, Lorraine, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Roberto. And it's always good. It really is always good to chat with you. I I remember like first meeting at SOAS through like the shared network, shared supervision. So I'm I'm glad we've been able to stay in touch.
0: Absolutely. So let me ask, you know, sort of a kickoff question. How did you start working on Palestinian history? What did you drag into this amazing but also controversial topic?
1: I mean, I, I honestly it feels like so long ago since <laughs> doing some of the earlier work but I think I centered on on it when I did my my first degree my bachelor's degree in the U.S. although obviously I I was studying history I couldn't you can't really specialize at that point or I couldn't but that was for whatever reason and I think at that time kind of early mid-2000s Palestine was this very recognizable name Um, and very recognizable in the news, and I was really interested in issues of the conflict at that point, like post, or really we were still in the Oslo process when I was studying. So I was taking history classes and political science classes, and that was, you know, one of these big topics. But I was quite interested initially in studying the conflict, I think as a lot of people are who come into Palestinian history, Um, and I was interested in the history of the wider Middle East. And eventually it took some time. But by the time I did my master's and then got to the Ph.D. program at SOAS, you know, I realized I was quite interested in the history of Palestine before 1948. And I was still at that point really interested. I think, again, like a lot of people who study history outside of Europe or North America are. Of what I would think of as political ideas, so ideology, nationalism, especially nationalist ideology. and I found as I was doing my Masters, that's what I was interested in, but it was also quite, to me, it seemed quite over, Oh, there was sort of this oversaturation in, at least at that point, the history of Palestine being focused on, you know, the frameworks of nationalism. So as I got into the PhD program and started thinking about, well, what else can I look at? I became quite interested in the history of citizenship during the Palestine mandate. So really from 1920 until the end of the mandate, about 1947, because it kind of combined this interest in nationalism, but really allowed me to look at a lot, look a lot more broadly at what I now would think of as social history, looking at the way that people interacted with this kind of ambiguous term of citizenship or this ambiguous status of being a legal citizen. And I should point out that I'm interested in the Arab population. And at this point, what I'm working on now, which we'll talk about later the non-Arab, but also non-European, non-Zionist population of Palestine. But there was this really interesting kind of from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s trajectory of people who were born in Ottoman Palestine, sometimes very early Mandate Palestine, and who left that territory for lots of different reasons. And then found themselves once citizenship became a legal status that the British mandate authorities more or less created alongside their counterparts in France, in other places in the Middle East, alongside League of Nations recommendations. But once this was created as a status, there were these, you know, it created a lot more problems than it solved. It was obviously created to as a way to facilitate the Jewish national home, to facilitate Zionism. But the repercussions of citizenship on Palestinians, especially those who left Palestine, what I was finding throughout the PhD and then the first book was could be really severe, including denial of being able to return to Palestine, denial of citizenship. And so many people were left kind of stranded without citizenship for decades, probably until 1948 even, um, and generations since to this day have remained outside of Palestine not because of what happened in 1948, not because of the Nakba, but because they never, their families were never recognized as citizens because of the way the British implemented citizenship and nationality laws.
0: This brings me back to a previous interview with uh, Nadim Bawalsa, who wrote this amazing book about uh, the Palestinians, mostly in Latin America. And one of the right. things that he discusses in the book is the 1925, uh, uh, British law, citizenship, where essentially thousands of Palestinians uh, as former Ottoman subjects lost their right to citizenship. But in your book, you talk about also the question about uh, what it meant to be a Palestinian citizen. So what is Palestinian nationality? And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about the concept, how this concept turned into a, a reality for Palestinians. Between the end of Ottoman rule up to basically 1948.
1: Right. And I, I know Nadim and, and his work, and I have since he was a PhD student. We actually I, I'm I'm sure we met in the archives in um in Jerusalem at one point when I was doing my PhD or maybe afterwards, and he was maybe even still a master's student. And we work on very, very similar things. I also talk about 1925 and these thousands of Palestinians stranded in Latin America, some in the Caribbean, and the real significance of the 1925 Citizenship Ordering Council. But you're right, I'm also interested in the ways in which people understood whether they were stuck abroad somewhere or within the, the borders of Mandate Palestine. How did they understand? what citizenship was or what nationality was and I think the book maybe I was kind of overly focused on certain sentiments but what it seemed what, what I used a lot of newspaper records petitions things like that to try and get a sense of how people define citizenship versus nationality what the differences were in understanding between being Arab, especially during the time of really heightened nationalism in the 1930s, anti-colonial nationalism, what it meant to be part of a larger Arab entity versus a Palestinian one. And I think more or less what the citizenship order and council outlined was what a lot of people understood as what being legally a citizen meant being born in Ottoman Palestine, so having this kind of rooted nature, having parents, grandparents, you know, further generations, being born in that same area, being recognized as Ottoman, and that really by the 1920s began to shift in some ways away from people understanding themselves or seeing themselves as more or less reflected in the towns or the villages or even the cities they were from, and rather the bordered kind of Entity of, of geographical mandate Palestine, but also you have a lot of people who are claiming Palestinian citizenship, not because they were born there, but because, for instance, their parents or grandparents were born there. And so there's also that kind of you know lineage that translated into, in many people's minds, a legal status, even though in reality, according to the British legislation, that wasn't really how it worked. But yeah, I'll I'll stop kind of there because I don't want to go into kind of this whole mess of of how people begin to negotiate with that, except to say that, that again, this kind of rootedness and being from the Ottoman space of Palestine was primary for a lot of people. But then you have many people claiming to be Palestinian for other reasons, such as they'd moved to Palestine, they were working there, they'd started families there, they'd married spouses who were Palestinian, and that that legalistically didn't grant them any recognition as citizens, but in their minds, kind of contributing to or being part of families who are Palestinian denoted citizenship.
0: I'm curious about uh, your views uh, related to some political uh, contemporary issue. Actually, this this issue has been going on for decades, but uh, in the context of uh, contemporary Israeli politics, obviously, the denials of uh, Palestinians as a people is very visible, very vocal on the part of the right-wing parties. And I wonder, you know, to to what extent actually the idea of a Palestinian citizenship, particularly for the Zionists, was acceptable and accepted, given the fact that they were already thinking about a Jewish state at some point uh, uh, that would have been formed one way or another. Right.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And and like I said, most of what I've worked on up until now has been on the Arab or Arabic speaking population. But obviously, the Jewish immigrant population into Palestine came, I think, with a lot of European conceptions of of citizenship and nationality, which did fit a bit more with the British way that citizenship in Palestine was created, that this was a process. There were steps towards naturalization, um, claiming oaths, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, I mean, on the whole, and, and perhaps this is maybe more prominent in the Israeli or the Hebrew literature, there maybe is a bit more work on citizenship in the mandate, specifically how it was interpreted and understood by Jewish Zionists, Jewish immigrants. But I think you're right in that Perhaps Palestinian citizenship was seen as maybe a step towards an eventual Jewish citizenship as part of a homeland without that British intermediary. And so I think the Arab population maybe, and I don't want to say was more content with being labeled as citizens, Palestinian citizens, because they did see themselves as Palestinian by, you know, even the early 1920s as separate from other Arab ethnic groups. But I think on, on the case of Zionist migrants, this was not received in the same terms. And I think a lot of, and we see this in, in you know the historical literature on migration into mandate Palestine European migration. A lot of migrants didn't want to give up their European nationality or passports or citizenship. Um a lot of them wanted to keep travelling back and forth different places and not settle in palestine and meet the conditions of being a palestinian citizen and certainly by the end of the 1930s early 1940s the perception of what britain was doing in palestine changed in a more and it became seen in a more negative light by a lot of zionists and especially leadership on the right and so the citizenship that the british granted was of course not seen as worth as much as you know the future state Providing citizenship, the future Jewish state, that is. I mean, and also to maybe speak to that, the, the point you made that is still so prominent in Israeli right wing, you know, extreme right wing that the Palestinians never existed as a separate people. I mean, sure, we can make these claims that, you know, there was this Ottoman system and imperial citizenship. But at the same time, during the mandate, the the Arab and the Jewish population, so long as they satisfied the conditions of citizenship, were recognized quite equally as citizens by by the British mandate government.
0: I know my comment might be very superficial, but uh, since the movie uh, Golda on Golda Meir just came out and, you know, we all know the famous mantra where she repeated Mm -hmm. many times that Palestinian never existed, and yet she bore a passport with uh, you know, a Palestinian citizenship. And it's a very mm-hmm. superficial comment, but in general, it kind of helps to understand the complexity of, of the picture. There was a term and the term defined people and that people were not necessarily one group or another, but it was all of them together. So just mm-hmm. denying that is almost an oxymoron because she was one essentially, she was yeah. Palestinian.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's the interesting why we have to have this kind of nuance in talking about it, because, of course, (laughs) that that is what her and many of her contemporaries, they held that Palestinian citizenship. It wasn't just, you know, their passport was stantis as for Palestine. They were treated internationally the same way that Arabs traveling internationally or recognized internationally were. Um, I mean, I think we all know what the point she was trying to make was and what she was trying to denigrate. But at the same time. It, it, it's a bit—it's a bit difficult to see the validity of that when we think of not just the case of Palestinian Arab citizens, but the 1920s, 1930s, when many of these early leaders of what becomes Israel were migrating to Palestine. They weren't going through these processes of becoming citizenships and holding passports in a vacuum. I mean, we can say about lots of different places that you know an independent you know, citizen or people didn't exist. Because it is the early and mid-1920s that across the world, globally, you see citizenship and nationality legislation, passport legislation, identity documents that defined who certain groups of people were legally, nationally, even ethnically, you know, the mistakes that may have been in those kind of categorizations. But, you know, this is the time period where it's not just the Palestinians, Arab Palestinians getting citizenship. This is the first time Syrians are recognized, Egyptians are recognized as citizens, etc. So it's, it's a very strange way of thinking about the existence or non-existence of, of a people. But again, I think, you know, we know she's trying to, to make, she was trying to make a particular comment that a united kind of nationally recognized people didn't exist in the realms of being justified with having a nation state.
0: And now my question would be, you know, in relation to Arab Palestinians. So obviously 1925, following, you know, the, the new law, which it must be said, actually, it's a result of the Treaty of Lausanne. Correct. Uh, yeah. And, you know, this year marks the centennial of the treaty. And so the very end, uh, of the Ottoman Empire, one of my arguments always been with essentially with Lausanne and with the uh, citizenship law. the Ottoman identity disappeared, but also Ottoman Palestinian history was sided uh, at least for decades to come, up until probably the work of Bishara Dumani and Salim mm-hmm. Tamari and others, where they brought back the Ottoman history of of, of Palestine. And I was wondering what was in for Arab Palestinians. I mean. Is there any positive side for Palestinians to actually now hold a Palestinian citizenship?
1: That's a good question, because I think, I mean, one of the, the key ways, I guess, to think about it is the way we might think about colonial citizenships anywhere, that the privileges that came with holding citizenship were ones that were given by colonizers. And so are they privileges or are they kind of concessions that? That these individuals got because you know they were lucky enough in very sarcastic terms to be colonized um, and in particular brutally colonized in a lot of places. And so I mean to be sure, I mean if we're looking from really a, a objective standpoint, citizenship in Palestine gave Arabs and Jews the right to vote in, you know obviously there was no parliament, the population couldn't elect the administrative leaders. um, That was all appointed by the British or elected by the British. But at the municipal level, village level, um, district level, citizenship did give a certain right to elect and to hold office. Um, Again, not at the the governmental level, the administrative level, let's say the mandate level. Um, But it also granted, perhaps in a less Sort of sarcastic way of thinking about it, granted the right to be mobile. Because this is also, again, as I said, the time where to travel outside of the borders of a new nation state, and let's face it, the mandate, this was a colonial apparatus, but it was also a recognized nation state during the time period, um, British administered. But still, to be able to leave that space, go somewhere else, call upon consular protection, you had to have. Palestinian citizenship, backing that up, either in the form of a passport or somehow, if necessary, the Palestine administration needed to be able to recognize someone as a citizen internationally. So there was also that. um, But again, I don't think that's unique to to any benefit of citizenship during this particular time period. Um, But I think those are sort of the two the two main reasons that citizenship, if not seen as beneficial, was quite significant and necessary
0: I have a question related to equality. Can mm. we say that Palestinian citizenship was equal for both Arabs and Jews or are there already from the very beginning signs of uh, some sort of uh, segregation or differences that are visible and possibly can we can trace back the origins of uh, you know sort of uh, differences between the two groups? Mm.
1: Now, that's a really good question, and I think in practice these things are not really equal because in a lot of cases. Decisions had to be made to recognize or not recognize someone as a citizen, and, and in the Arab case, for the most part, most of the Palestinian Arabs were recognized as citizens without any sort of paperwork or need to prove something. They had to have been born in the borders of Ottoman Palestine or descended from Palestinian fathers, and also living in Palestine for a certain number of years before the citizenship order went into place. Whereas for most Jewish immigrants, except those who were already living there before, and then just after the First World War, there was this process of naturalization. And so many of the immigrants who went through that process did get, let's say, the paperwork and the identity documents and the passports that denoted them as citizens. Whereas for the majority of the Palestinian population, they didn't have that because they were automatically recognized as citizens. But where that came into conflict was when someone needed to prove that they were a citizen of Palestine rather than, say, a Syrian and Egyptian um, someone from Lebanon, someone from elsewhere, because they didn't have that kind of documentary paperwork. And this is something I look at in in what I'm working, one of the things I'm working on now with issues of deportation, uh, repatriation, extradition, that a lot of people were born in Palestine, but whose family members came from somewhere else, from Syria, from Egypt, from Transjordan, from Lebanon, were really faced a lot of difficulties when they had to prove who they were, either to get a passport or to come and go, you know, to see neighbors or friends across the border. Whereas most Jewish immigrants didn't have that problem because they had the paperwork. Um, And there are also issues with marriages, spousal recognition of who was a citizen, who wasn't, that many Jewish immigrants had a bit more flexibility with. so, yeah, I mean, overall, I think on paper things were equal, but in practice, things could be really ambiguous for Arab Palestinians when, when requested to prove that they were citizens. And not that they had to prove this constantly, but in the cases where they did, I mean, you see there is certainly a pattern of officials in the Mandate Administration not always taking those people at face value that they were citizens.
0: Do you see any legacy of the uh, British-Palestinian citizen law up to today?
1: I think that the main legacy is, is that it is quite different from, uh, you know, what we know as the, the Israeli law, um, because it was not dictated by by religion or ethnicity or or, well, language. To naturalise, you had to be fluent in either Arabic, English or Hebrew. But I think that the Palestinian law was a product of its time in that it was like a lot of other colonial era, but also national laws, that citizenship was recognized by descent or by birth in a territory rather than by anything else. And so if a nation state would have been created after 1948 that was for Arabs and Jews or a state of all of its citizens, we would have seen a very, you know, maybe a more positive legacy of the Palestinian citizenship law. I mean, as it happened in 1948, essentially, that law was, was null and void. Um, of course, some of the other, you know, the other legacy, what I've worked on, what Nadim has worked on, is that, you know, these thousands of citizens who left were denied the ability to return and be recognized as citizens, which, comparatively, this is a small number, but it still had repercussions. And that aspect of the law itself was not reproduced in many other laws. So Lebanon and Syria, uh, for instance, didn't have the same caveat whereby if someone left the territory and after a certain number of years they remained out, they were kind of shut off from ever getting citizenship, whether they left with the intention to eventually return or not. And that's not really like some of the citizenship legislation we see today.
0: I will have a, one more question about your earlier work, but I mm. want to move to uh the new work, and so under the ages of the Wellcome Trust, uh, and you're working at the University of Manchester, you're working on a new project called Medical Deportees, Narrations and Photographies of Health at the Borders of Great Britain, Egypt, and Palestine. And you're also working on a new manuscript we'll talk about a little, but I'm very curious about this uh, very large project. Uh, once so- again, covering the period of 1919-1949, which seems to be your more comfortable historical uh, era to work on.
1: And I think Well, the, the Wellcome Trust project is, it looks at Palestine, but it also looks at Egypt, and it looks at the United Kingdom. And I'm looking, this is a comfortable, I like the mandate, I like the interwar period. Um, but this is also sort of pragmatic in that the project itself looks, I mean, and this we'll talk, we can talk about the book manuscript as well in a bit, but this project looks at issues of deportation and forced removal of not necessarily only Palestinians or Egyptians, but migrants within the Middle East. I'm not looking so much at European Jews, but they they do come into play. The deportations of these individuals from Palestine and Egypt when they were designated as undesirable because of medical conditions they had. So psychiatric, sometimes even emotional and like, you know, the parlance of the 1920s, what an emotional illness was and physical infirmities. So how immigration legislation allowed for the removal of categories of people who were mentally and physically unfit And this is a type of legislation that existed across the world during this point. And I mean, even until today, some of these laws are still in the books. And I'm looking also at migrants from the Middle East, so from Palestine and Egypt, but also more broadly, Armenian refugees, for instance, um, Yemeni seafarers, others who went to Great Britain and were deported from there for the same reasons of being medically unfit. And so the 1919 starting point reflects United Kingdom legislation to restrict certain aliens or certain non-citizens, certain foreigners, which included some of this legislation against these medical conditions. And the 1949-1950s, the beginning of the World Health Organization and the United Nations to some extent, also having a role to play in the migration of peoples and what happens when those individual migrants... Some of whom are refugees or forcibly displaced, some of whom are migrating for work, were also found by states not to be, let's say, healthy enough to be on the move. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year.
0: So I'm curious about the question of pathography. So I, I, is there a list of disease? I mean, how are people defined? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how probably better say, what are the conditions that define the people and their status?
1: Yeah, and this is this is again is something that's common across colonial territories, but also national kind of sovereign states. And there's been so much work done on this um, by historians of the British Commonwealth or of Australia, New Zealand, Canada, to some extent, looking at this legislation and these lists of illnesses. So, you know, the early 1920s, the kind of terminology would see as people who are prohibited from entry as anyone who is a lunatic, insane, um, manic, suffering from mania, Um, as some of the psychiatric conditions, I mean, there's also a list of physical or even infectious communicable diseases, so tuberculosis, but also things like being, again, the parlance of the 1920s being crippled or in some way, you know, not being handicapped, not having use of arms or legs. And a lot of the reason, or at least the justification at that point for those was to have a healthy workforce, migrant workforce. Um. As you go through the 1930s, 1940s, some of these conditions become more defined, schizophrenia, epilepsy, which I think we understand today is not necessarily a mental health condition. Uh, Things like syphilis, though, which affected the body and in some cases could be an affliction that that would affect one's central nervous system. And I think some of the lists of physical illnesses are, are sharpened as well. Um. And I'm interested in how the, you know, the pathographies of those, but also pathography in the sense of how the people who were categorized as having these illnesses or disabilities understood that illness in relation to them trying to enter a country, trying to become an immigrant, trying to um, travel for work in relation to their displacements, um, And I think some of this came out of the work I've done on on refugee history and displacement, and how the notion of refugees and displaced persons having a variety of illnesses and being maybe not so wanted in particular places, uh, sort of is manifested in this project as well.
0: Uh, I'm curious about the f- the question of, of their identity as refugees. Were they refugees because picked uh, uh, out? you know, in a in manner of speaking, uh, as a result of their mental health conditions or because of other conditions?
1: Actually, that, that's a good question. And I'm, I'm sort of looking at this in, in two ways. So I'm looking at people who were displaced as a result of conflict. And for this time period and the geographical locations, Armenian refugees are, are kind of the main ones. But also looking at people who were displaced and seeking refuge for other reasons, which is a bit harder for me, you know, in kind of the first year of this project, it's the first of three years to grapple with and to see reflected in the sources. But for sure, I'm looking at people who are displaced economically. So people who are are leaving, say, Yemen, for instance, and going to the UK during this period, strictly for work, for labour. Um, there's this long history of of sort of, Shipping that incorporates Yemenis, or especially people from Aden, also from elsewhere in the Middle East, and of course, from South Asia. Um, but I'm seeing people seeking refuge or a refuge or people who are defining themselves as displaced as not just what we would think of as standard conflict refugees, but people who are displaced for other reasons. And some people, of course, like within the Middle East that I'm looking at going to and from egypt and and Palestine, people are claiming to be refugees you know, not because of conflict or even because of they're looking for jobs, but, you know, political refugees, for instance, um, people who are fleeing unstable social situations as well.
0: I'm curious about the reaction. I mean, given the limited knowledge of mental health conditions, again, you use the word Mm -hmm. lunatics. People were often defined lunatics. Obviously, there was no idea and concept of uh, PTSD after World War One. Uh, some people, individuals began to understand, uh, there was a connection between the war. So they use the word uh, shell shock. Uh, and I was wondering what was the reaction of the authorities in relation to these refugees that manifested, uh, clear, uh, signs of mental health conditions.
1: Yeah. And this is something I'm, I'm kind of getting into only now. So a lot of what I've done the past few months has been kind of the wider literature, some archival work, and now I'm I'm hoping to get into a lot more of this, so it's sort of limited what I've found thus far. But I mean, there's certainly more about soldiers and people who were involved in the military who found themselves in Palestine or Egypt and were hospitalized or what we would say institutionalized or at the time put in mental asylums, as they were called. And the list of symptoms that, the, that they had were... I mean, very much representative of of probably their experience in in the in either the First World War or in the Second World War. Things like shell shock or or post traumatic stress, and were being, of course, at the time, as you say, these weren't really recognized, and so they were seen as you know conditions of of madness, um, and those people were then judged not only unfit you know, as, as soldiers, but obviously unfit to remain you know, kind of where they were stationed and sent back to the UK. I'm hoping to find a bit more about uh, what I've not archivally done yet, but refugees and displaced persons who are also grappling with the real psychological effects of what had happened to them, especially Armenians. And for sure, in Palestine and Egypt, there are cases of Armenians, orphans for the most part, but also those who are, who are adults who were, put into asylums because they also were seen as undesirable. Um, They weren't behaving properly. They'd been reported by others for whatever reason of, of not being, um, you know, of a calm temperament. And so it was really, again, you know, a product of, of this time period where mental health wasn't really understood as I suppose, stemming from things for sure. I mean, kind of not speaking of refugees or, or war veterans, but there's, you know, perhaps predictably, and this is the case with, you know, people traveling elsewhere, women who are institutionalized for all sorts of reasons and being labeled as lunatic or manic or something like that. But there is definitely some sort of trend that I'm hoping to see in, in a lot more detail that connects people who are migrants or who have been you know, sent from somewhere. And that migration or that kind of being transient or wandering around has affected their their mind, at least in the way that people were, you know, mental, not mental health, but doctors and, and physicians and immigration authorities as well thought. So you do see a lot of migrants who are diagnosed with particular diseases. Um, and the explanation that was given for those diseases and them being put in an asylum was, you know, they were affected by their migration.
0: Let me move to uh, your new work, uh, a book manuscript. You're working on this uh, and hopefully will be ready at some point soon. And we we may have a a longer interview about the book. So I just wanna mention that the book is about uh, licit and illicit mobility along the borders of Palestine between 1920 and 1950. And uh, when I was reading your sort of abstract, I was reminded that I'm literally working on a book now published by uh, Noah Shandengler, Displacement and Erasure in Palestine, which has been recently published. And she's talking about this, uh, uh, you know, this concept of uh, post-Nakba when uh, Arabs, Palestinians uh, in Hebrew defined as uh, mishtananim, were infiltrators, were trying to go back to their properties in post-Nakba Jaffa. And, and so it made me feel like you know there's a connection here because what you're talking about in the new manuscript is this idea of this illicit, uh, clandestine, undocumented immigration to and from Palestine, you know, in the interwar period, and obviously also including the post World War II era. And so I was wondering if you can just give us a sense of uh, what the book will be about, mm-hmm. and maybe we can uh, discuss with you more details some of. Uh, Interesting point that you have in the abstract.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I haven't read her book yet, but that I know of it. And, and that's not the only, I think, book or project that I've also thought that is, there is a connection there. So you're right. And I think, you know, it's not just Palestinians or Arabs who are going back to their villages, but some of these patterns of trade that continued after the Nakba that was categorized as infiltration there's so much that could be done on that as well you know trade in animals or in meat or in drug i mean there is the work on on hashish in palestine um so drug smuggling it's i, I think and, and i'll talk a few more about what the book is on specifically because it's not necessarily on on smuggling as such but there's such rich kind of literature and sources that are maybe underused that would really put together a fascinating picture of How could we think about this region after 1948 without thinking of borders or what happens with the Green Line at all? Um, But in terms of the the book itself, um, the manuscript is probably halfway done, I (laughs) hope, Um, and I'm trying to do something quite different from the earlier book. So this is really a social history um, and I'm looking at my I'm using the the prism of micro history or micro narratives to look at these different stories of people who were illicitly moving across borders or undocumented in the sense that they weren't necessarily always legally Palestinian citizens. So that's the connection with my earlier work, but that they didn't have the permission to enter Palestine, to enter the neighboring territories. Um, so they were flagged as illegally present, clandestinely moving across borders. And I'm really interested in what are the consequences of that for the people who were moving across borders without permission, evading frontier control, evading immigration regulations. What happens to them, their families, the communities that they come from or that they're moving to and from? When we think about illicit mobility, Movements that are not permitted by the state, and I'm looking at not just Arabs, but also Kurds, people from Central Asia, people from elsewhere in North Africa who are crossing to and from Palestine. And I'm really interested in the stories that they're presenting to courts, to immigration officials, um, to the police, the criminal investigation department. In petitions to the, you know, up up to the high commissioner or to the British secretary of, colonial secretary, to lawyers, to their own advocates, to their families, how do they understand this illicit mobility? But I'm also quite interested in what this means socially. So one of the chapters, and I'll just, you know, kind of briefly talk about this as, as an example, one of the chapters looks at how rumors and denunciations against certain people were used by those people or by even a whole community to make claims to immigration authorities or to the police that a certain person didn't belong in Palestine. So, you know, rumors about a woman being a prostitute, for instance, and have having come into Palestine to, you know, set up a brothel and meet clients, and now she's bringing over her family and her sisters and all of this. What do these rumors actually do Oftentimes they're not true. Sometimes they are. But when those rumors make their way up to the bureaucracy of of the mandate in Palestine or the administrations elsewhere, the repercussions are massive. So I'm looking at also the process of these people then being suddenly deported and their lives more or less upended um, because they crossed that border illegally illegally. I mean, illegally as, you know, kind of an objective concept. But what is happening at a very social, local level when we think about border control?
0: I guess this raises the question of the borders. I mean, these are borders that were established by the British artificially. So I was wondering, you know, to what extent people really realize these were real borders with administrative and also legal consequences.
1: Yeah, Yeah, I think that that's. I think in piecemeal that comes into play, because for sure, you know, as you may know and other people may know, the borders were established kind of slowly in places. Um, Some borders, say, between parts of Palestine and Lebanon, French mandate Lebanon, even French mandate Syria, were really in flux for years um, but that also meant that the British and the French also instituted different regimes in different parts of the borders. So some people could cross borders if they lived right on the, the line. Um, whereas if we look at the wider frontier or the borderland, some people who had always crossed anyway suddenly couldn't cross without a border pass. Um, and then some obviously needed a you know a visa and a passport to cross. But I'm also looking at there are certain bridges. I mean, we all, if we work on, on Palestine, Israel, or have traveled there, we know the bridge crossings that we use today um, to go to Jordan and, you know, at one point to Syria, those bridge crossings became hard borders in the 1920s and 30s. So I'm also looking at how do you know, what happens when people are trying to cross these bridges as well? What happens when they try and cross, you know, the rivers, which happens when they try and cross Lake Tiberias without passports or visas. So it's it's interesting. And I think the understanding of borders was there, but the implications that they could cross without the right permissions and that they could not only be deported, but put in jail, find, um, you know, have a criminal history if if they tried to cross and settle in Palestine. But I think what something else the book looks at is um You know, say someone crossed in 1923 from Syria, settled in, you know, a city in Palestine, stayed there for 20 years, 15 years, by the late 1940s, suddenly he's found, he or she is found to be never having the permission to have resided in Palestine. And so you have this 20 year life um, suddenly completely ruined because someone gets wind of the fact that a Syrian or an Egyptian has settled somewhere that they didn't have permission to settle. Um, They may have crossed the border knowingly without permission, but they didn't think that, you know, after they married and had Palestinian children, that that border could come back to haunt them, essentially.
0: Now, I'm in America at the moment. And uh, as I guess everybody knows, the previous administration tried to build the wall unsuccessfully. Um, In Britain, there was an attempt to build a sort of a offshore facility Mm. to, um, let's let's call it as it was, to jail migrants. I'm originally yeah. from Italy, there's all sorts right. of uh, issues with migrants crossing the Mediterranean and try to accommodate them uh, in their journey throughout other European countries. Uh, and very much all of this is done as a response to a public opinion that seem not to support migration, to see migrants as almost invaders. Mm. And so I, I wonder, at the stage of your research, how did Palestinians, Jews and Arabs see these people coming in, crossing mm. illegally into uh, the newly created uh, uh, sort of Palestine?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think my welcome trust project is a bit more. I think some of the legacies of what I look at is reflected in today the way that migrants are treated in the U.S., the southern U.S., and in the UK, those who are crossing by boat. So that's, I think, that's very relevant to the Welcome Trust, um, particularly, you know, ill migrants. This is, you know, even we think back to, oh, at least in the UK, you know, there was a point during the war where refugees were welcome and um, accepted. These Europeans, but in reality, I, that that's not necessarily the case. Um, but thinking of 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 the context of the book manuscript and this project on illegal illicit border crossing, I think it's a really mixed um, reaction by Palestinian Arabs and Jews. On the one hand, you have Arabs who are happy to accommodate the smuggling or facilitate, I'll say, the smug, you know, human smuggling, people smuggling of Jews from Iraq or Syria into Palestine, no problem. Uh, perhaps because that's a financial transaction like, you know, today, smugglers receive money from those who are being smuggled. But nationalist sentiments don't seem to come into play when that's happening. Um, even ordinary villagers are, you know, helping show Jewish um, Arabs how to you know, cross the frontier without being detected. So you have things like that. And of course, you have marriages happening between these migrants who have come to work in Palestine, who have come with the British army and have worked um, in military camps, but have decided to stay. Um, and their children are accepted as Palestinians. They themselves claim to be Palestinian. Um, but then on the other hand, you do have cases where um, I presented some work on, on this about rumors and denunciations, I think last summer, and, and someone said this is sort of like, you know, tattletailing. You do have that. Residents of villages or towns who are making the case to deport someone who's not of, you know, a Palestinian background, because you know we see the reflection of modern-day discourse. They're taking the jobs that are rightfully for Palestinians who are unemployed. You know, in some cases, they're taking Palestinian women. Um, they're corrupting elements of, of you know, small-town social life. So it's really, it it depends um, in that case. But I think on the whole, you know, these people are, who are coming in are accepted as either workers or, you know, fellow neighbors and residents without that kind of language of they're illicit. They came here illegally. They don't belong. And when there are cases of people being, you know, reported to the authorities, there's usually a reason Behind that, Um, you know, there's business rivalries, there's family rivalries, you know, someone just doesn't like someone and they just decide they don't want them in the neighborhood. So um, I don't think there's anything unique about the responses there. It's the governmental, the mandate response and, you know, the French mandates or the British mandates to deport, you know, detain them, fine them, deport them, things like that.
0: I have one last question. I really wanna go back to uh, your first book, but I think in some ways can connect to your current work. So it's been 30 years since the uh, ratification of the Oslo Accords. And certainly when we can we, we look back at those accords, there was a genuine attempt to uh, find solutions to many other problems but many of the problems were not really solved from the very beginning. And I think this was uh, one of the major point made by Rashid Khalidi almost uh, immediately after the Oslo Accords were signed. And I was wondering if you can share your views about uh, what happened in the past 30 years and about the Oslo Accords and how the Oslo Accords also represent a failure in this idea of citizenship and uh, creation of state.
1: Yeah, and I think, I mean, I there's probably far better people to ask this this too. But I think, you know, obviously the main the main failure and procedural failure was that the Oslo Accords and the process to, you know, sign these documents and and you know lay out what was meant to happen when, is that of course none of them granted sovereignty to the Palestinians, either to the to the governments. Um you know, be that as it may, or to the Palestinian population themselves to create their own state um, to control the borders of that state, to control everything that, you know, is part of the life of a state, even to control, you know, a citizenship law, or citizenship legislation. Also, it was never meant to create an independent Palestinian state or even a sovereign Palestinian state. But it was a series of of, you know, steps to you know, have both sides recognized. But as we know, Israel, and, and, you know, of course, the Israel military was still making the calls, right, was still ensuring that there was a separation between the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, ensuring that, I mean, I'm not sure if Oslo did so much for this at all. But, you know, we still have the status of Palestinians in Jerusalem, which is is not, you know, as not citizens of, Of you know under the PA and not really citizens of Israel as well. So I think that's the main and has been the main problem with Oslo. I mean, uh, you know, aside from everything else, that there this was never meant to create an independent Palestinian state or an independent Palestinian you know government. Um, and I think you know if we think to the citizenship or nationality legislation, even the way that that has been created in you know the decades since let's say you know the 1960s and the way that the PLO has thought about this I think there are you know the PLO I believe initially recognized anyone who was a mandate citizen as being part of a future Palestine so Jews Arabs equally and of course there are some Israeli politicians um very left-wing ones who have been very happy with with that um and who still call themselves Palestinians but I think there is also no necessarily no way that's been put forward and accepted and really kind of hashed out of what belonging to a Palestinian state would look like. Um, and obviously that's been, you know, a problem since 1948 and the UN's involvement with the Palestine mandate. So um I mean, of course, there's there's many, many other issues to come before, you know, the legislative ones that would create some sort of functioning sovereign state. But I think those legislative ones, things like citizenship are are quite important, just as important as defining boundaries and just as important as defining, you know, military force, etc. This
0: was Lorraine Banco, currently a Welcome Trust Research Fellow at the University of Manchester and author of The Invention of Palestinian Citizenship, 1918-1947, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2018. Lorraine, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Roberto. This was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast,
0: please share it with others on social media or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest, follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook